grab your Bible, open up to the book of Judges. We have gone verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and tonight will be no different. As you're on your way to Judges chapter 15, uh, you hear me say it every week, we choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of prophecy. They are divine, not human in origin. We here at Riverside believe in sola scriptura, which means our Bible is our highest authority. Not the Constitution, not the flag, not the Pledge of Allegiance. Those things are wonderful in their specs, in their, in their jurisdiction, but we believe that the Bible has the highest authority, even over the preacher, even over the deacons, even over the congregation. We also believe in uh, sola, well, that was sola scriptura. We also believe in sola fide, which is faith and faith alone. Faith is confidence and trust in something and that something is not a something but a someone and that faith is found in Jesus Christ the Latin phrase of course is sola Christus Jesus alone we only have faith in what Jesus has done for us and faith in Jesus and that because of what Jesus has done it's not about what we've done because the wages of sin is death that means what we earn is what we earn is death but what Jesus gives upon us is grace and that's called sola gracia, a Latin phrase that means grace and grace alone that you're saved simply by grace. You don't want fair you don't want justice because if you got fair you go to hell if you got justice what you deserve you would go to hell but it's only by grace. Can I get a witness up in here? It's only simply by grace we're saved and that culminates from the sinner who cries out from hell who receives justice from the saint who's in heaven, who's only saved by grace. God alone receives all the glory, no matter where they are. Uh, Sole Deo Gloria is what we call it. God alone receives the glory. With all those tonight, as we looked over those five solas, we look in Judges chapter 15. If you remember last week, we spoke about Samson. Samson being the, the man with potential, he was heralded by Jesus Christ himself talking to Manoah. Manoah, Manoah being the, uh, Samson's father and mother, they heard that this child will be a Nazarite. That this child would not have his hair cut or touch a dead body or ever take anything from the vine. We've learned that from the Deuteronomy chapter 6, we've learned from Deuteronomy chapter 12 that if you touch a body, you're disqualified unceremonially. And you can't become before the presence of God. So this Nazarite vow means that you will not have any such close relations that comes before God. Whether it be a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, children, a spouse, that God would be your number one priority. So this Samson will have, he will basically be God's man. He will have a dishonor of having long hair because his locks would never be cut unless they just fell out. However, he had long hair. That means he was able to carried the reproach of being in a vow before God. That he was carrying dishonor because we can read in Corinthians that Paul tells us it's dishonorable for a man to have long hair. So he was able to carry any reproach that the world could throw at him and that he wouldn't drink anything from the vine. That he would not find his joy joy in a bottle. That he would find his joy only in God. It seems like we need to have some Christians uh, maybe get long hair and just drink from the joy of the Lord. And maybe 
if we get back to the, the vow and the covenant that God has with us. Amen? Amen. But we won't get into that. We're going to look here in Judges chapter 15. As we already saw in chapter 14, there was a wedding, y'all. There was a wedding like no other. Where there was a, a riddle and people getting mad. Have you ever been to a wedding like that? Don't look, don't look surprised and don't look at anybody. Have you ever been to some wedding you're like, boy, I don't wish I would. I, I, I wish I won't hear, be honest with you. It, where, where the catering was off, the, the bride went off and somebody got mad. There was a fight. Well, that's what happened at this wedding. There was a riddle put forth by Samson because in his playful heart, he wasn't intending on liberating God's people with all that strength and might that God gave him. He was dealing with his own situations and he was causing drama in his own life. It's because even though he was a big man with big muscles, he was still a little boy. Let's be honest. There's a lot of little boys who shave nowadays, who aren't really men and mature in their heart. Here he is causing drama at his own wedding, and the wedding fell flat on its face. He goes down the street after the 30 companions of the Philistines answer the riddle, and he has to pay up on his end. He goes down to the nearest village, kills about 30 Philistines, raid their closets, and came back and paid his end of the bet, and he goes on home without his wife. Ooh, this is better than anything you see on TV, y'all. These are better than stories y'all been watching. Get your nose off of Facebook and get your nose into God's book. Here, we look in Judges chapter 15 after some days at the time of wheat harvest. So it's been a good while. Usually people get married in the spring, and that's something we see in Scripture too. Because after coming out of winter, whenever the blossom comes forward, it's a symbol of new life. And the pagans, uh, who are the Philistines, probably wanted to have a wedding in the spring. But we see now it's time for the harvest. So it's probably almost a good six months later. We see in 15 verse 1, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Just what every woman wants, a young goat, y'all. A beautiful, bouncing young goat by. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. Look at his sweet talking. But her father would not allow him to go in. And he said, he, his father said, I, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Please take her instead. Insults, flying, backhand compliments are all seen through this part of Scripture. Here's her own daddy saying she ain't as, her, her little sister is much prettier than her. How would you like to hear that? Amen. Uh, but then we see here, the father thought for sure Samson hated her because he turned her over to the best man at the wedding. If you remember back in chapter 14, there were 30 Philistines that came to facilitate and support Samson. See, he was trying to make a covenant with the people of the Philistines. I don't know if that was his intention. But here, here we see that the Philistines were going to have married into their family the champion of Israel. And they were doing all they can to sweeten the deal. But when it fell through, the father turned the bride over to the best man who was a Philistine. Oh, this ain't going to go well, y'all. I don't know if y'all read it, but this don't turn out good at all. Here we see the father saying that the younger sister is much more beautiful. Please take her instead. Pagan people do pagan things. If in your life, if you're a Christian and you're walking the walk and you're serving God and you hear of the pagans and the heathens raging around you, 
For an example, there's a rapper who just came out. I'm not talking about the people who rap your cheeseburgers. It's a certain type of song. It's called rapping. His name is Little Nas, and he's actually selling sneakers now with 666 on him. And the Bible verse, Behold, I saw Satan fall from the sky. And even in the sole of the shoe, he claims there's human blood. And he has a pentagram on the cover. We shouldn't be shocked. We should say, well, yeah, of course. They, they, they're wicked. They're going to do what wicked do. Amen? The heathen rage... But God is still on the throne. Pagans is going to pag, y'all. Pagans is going to Sinners is going to sin. And let us not be taken aback and shocked. Here, Samson, he don't like this news at all, y'all. He didn't take it very well. Verse number 3, And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. He's saying this time, I, it's not me. It's them this time. Well, we know that Samson has an issue with, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get even. We know revenge works, right? An eye for an eye. In fact, at the end of the, the story, actually Samson doesn't have any eyes. If you take an eye for an eye, get even with someone, and eventually everybody's blind. This is the hero of Israel. He's the one who's coming to redeem the people. And yet, he's still a man. It's going to take more than a man to redeem God's people. It's going to take God. It's going to take more than your preacher who stands up here week after week preaching God's Word, praying for you. It's going to take more than me. It's going to take more than your deacons, more than your denomination. It's going to take God. Here, he says, this time it ain't on me, God. It's on them. So Samson went in verse number 4 and caught 300 foxes and took 300 torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put on a torch between their pair of tails. So he created some fire foxes here. As they're going to get ready to run. If you got two foxes running against each other terrified and the torch is bouncing behind them, they're going to run sporadically in all different directions. And don't forget, it's harvest time. You say, well, he caught 300 foxes? Well, this is Samson. I don't know how he did it. It doesn't say that anybody helped him. In fact, we can compare all the other judges. They had armies with them. But mostly Samson was a loner. He wasn't that good of a leader to begin with. But he is to judge God's people. We see here that he grabs these foxes and they put a torch between the two, their two tails and they ran. In verse 5, and when the, he set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines, set fire to the stacked grain and to the standing grain as well as to the olive orchards. In verse number 5, we see that he attacks the religion. If you really want to get somebody, you go with what they believe. You say, well, all he did is go after their crops. Well, you must remember the Philistines, they served and honored Moloch. They served and honored any other god who would bless their crops. And they're going to take their crops and sacrifice them to their gods. But before they were able to, he sneaks in because it says stacked, the stacked wheat, the stacked olives, all the things that's in storage. He goes after them as well as what's in the field. On this harvest season, a time where they come forth and they harvest and they throw a big party and they get down with their gods, they serve their gods almost like a, a big hallelujah night. They, they just celebrate. But he cancels all that. 
with his little scheme with 300 foxes. Now, uh, that's almost juvenile. It's almost funny when we read it. We see Samson holding these little foxes and setting them loose all through the countryside and strategically attacking the places where they store them, also attacking their sacrifices to their God. In verse number 5, And when he set fire to the torches, he set the foxes into the standing grains of the Philistines. The standing grain was what's in the field, and the stacked grain, and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchids. In verse number 6, And the Philistines said, Who has done this? And somebody, I don't know who, they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the termite. Because he has taken his wife and given it to his companion. It was Samson. He's getting even with us. He's getting even with us. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Well, there you go, Samson. You're already delivering God's people, but the only people you delivered and killed was your own wife and father-in-law because they kept true to the promise that they would burn down the house with her inside and her father. They kept their promises. Well, I guess after Samson said he was going to do this, we would read he judged Israel for 20 years and it was over. But no, there's much more to the story because revenge begats revenge. One up begats another one up. I'm going to get you, and after you get them, they get you back. That's how it works. Wouldn't it be a different story if somebody forgave? Well, who would forgive here? Would it be the pagans? We don't expect pagans to forgive. What about God's man Samson? Well, he's kind of juvenile, let's be honest. He's playing riddles and he's playing with sin, let's be honest. Walking through vineyards, touching dead carcasses, playing with the vows of God, almost tiptoeing around sin, playing with vipers, as the story will show us later on in chapter 16, that he plays around with sin. He doesn't believe that he'll be a statistic. That's what people do nowadays. They say, well, I know it's a sin to do this and this and this, but it won't conquer me. It won't hold on to me. Here we see that Samson is one of the strongest that humanity has ever offered. And sin grips him and he falls hard. Don't be a fool. Don't play with sin. Don't jest with sin. Joke about spiritual things. Roll your eyes because the truth of the matter is the old Puritan saying is the same son that melts the ice, hardens the clay. Every time you come to Riverside and you hear the gospel preached, you hear that Jesus died for sinners, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to pound your heart and to mince me and crush you and you repent of your sins, or you'll roll your eyes and your heart gets another layer of rock over it and you are eventually hardened and you go on sinning. Then God simply turns you over to your sins. That's scary. That should cause you to tremble. Here we see that Samson, he sets it up again now. The Philistines are coming after him. Uh, And then they go and destroy his wife and his father-in-law. In verse 7, And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. He swears he'll stop after this. He'll get even and that's it. Then we should read Samson judged Israel 20 years and died in peace. But we don't. There's much more of the story. I ask you tonight, where's your limit? I'll get even with them. I'm still harboring unforgiveness. I'll get them. 
I ain't forgot what they did back then in that day or what they said. I haven't forgot. I'll get even with them one day. In verse number 8, And He struck them hip and thigh with a great blow and went down and stayed in the cliff of the rock of Edom. In verse number 8, hip and thigh, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, to lean in with your hip and your thigh, that's a big muscle. That means he used all his might. We don't read here how many he killed or if he killed, but we know he put a good hurting on them. He stomped a mud hole in them and walked it dry, just to put it plainly. He wore them out. He leaned into them hip and thigh. He leaned in with all his effort and all that he had, and then he went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom. And then verse number 9, the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Leah. And the, and the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he's done to us. This gang warfare is getting out of hand now. Innocents have already died the Philistine wife and the father-in-law. Now the Philistines are riding into town and holding those who are local in Judah. They're holding them hostage and causing them harassments. And then we see something strange in verse 11. 3,000 men. You would think that would be enough to beat off the Philistines. You would think that's enough to conjure up an army to go against those who were coming against them. But no! Who do they go after? Verse 11, Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? We pause there just for a moment that these men of God, they're the tribe of Judah. If you know anything of the tribe of Judah, they're called the lions. They're the ones that roar and celebrate and praise God. But here they have slave mentalities. What are you doing? Stirring up trouble for us. Don't you know they're our masters? Don't you know they're the ones that rule over us? I know that we are the tribe of Judah. Our name dictates that we are lions, that we are brave. But the Philistines are the bosses, Samson. And here you are riding around causing trouble. And they're bearing down on us. What then is that we are to have done to us? And he said to them, As they have done to me, I have done to them. They did it to me, I did it to them. No regret here. He's not worried. He's Samson's worried about Samson. With all the potential that God has given him, all the heralding of him being a holy child, with all his strength, with all this power, we see that Samson still worried about Samson. They say power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Maybe that's why we don't have that high paying job. God has us right where we need to be. Maybe that's why we don't have that very nice house because it will be an emblem of pride. Maybe that's why our health isn't always the very best because we'll be arrogant. Maybe that's why we, we go through struggles and trials and tribulations because God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on our behalf and we don't have anything else for God's wrath. But why do we struggle? Why do we find pain in our lives? Well... Apostle Paul writes that. And Peter, if you want to know about pain and struggling, read the book of Peter, first and second. But Paul says, I had a thorn in the flesh to keep me from being arrogant. 
Because he was illuminated and he had revelations beyond anybody else. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And if anybody could get arrogant, it would be the Apostle Paul. And all these prosperity preachers who, who say that today money comes and you're going to have health and prosperity. All you got to do is tithe. Hey, give more than your tithe. Give an offering. Give 50% of all your wages. 75. Just pay to pray. They'll give you all kinds of funny little sayings and jingles to get your money. And whenever you come across calamity and trials, they'll say you didn't have enough faith. That's bad theology. That's why it matters where you go to church. What this preacher says is you will face trials and valleys so dark that you won't be able to see a few feet in front of you. You might lay in a pit and the grave almost roll over on top of you. You might be in a prison of depression and you might lose loved ones. But Jesus is faithful. His grace is sufficient for you in your weakness to keep you from being arrogant. We face these calamities and hardships to sand us down to be in the image of Jesus. Somebody will hear this and say, well, you're preaching a humglum gospel. There's nothing humglum about being like Jesus. Take the fool's gold of everything that glimmers in this world. Take the diamonds, take the, 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 the ore, take it all, just give me Jesus. Amen. That's the motto of a true disciple, someone who loves Christ. Here we see that he says, I've done to them with what they've done to me. What if God did that to us? What if he answered our prayers like we answer his calls? In verse number 12, and they said to him, we have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. That sure does sound familiar. Of the people of Israel binding their champion. The very one they should be getting behind and turning them over to the pagans. Have y'all heard, heard anything similar to that? Was there a movie? No, it's not a movie. I read it. Oh, the Bible. Jesus. Where the Jews bind their champion. The very one they should have hoisted upon their shoulders and worshipped and followed. They bind him and hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. Here we see the story being written yet again before it's written. Samson being turned over to the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. Samson didn't want to destroy his own people. And they said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We shall surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. The reason it says new ropes here because new ropes are a little stronger than old ropes. But did it really matter? Did it really matter? This man is strong. Just like when they arrested Jesus. He is the Son of God. And when they came to arrest him, they had pitchforks and swords. But did that really matter? No. When they hung him on the cross, they used three puny little nails. But did that hold him there? No. 
What held Christ to the cross? Was it the fact that sometimes traditionally they would tie ropes around the form whenever they crucified someone because the weight of the body would rip the hands off the cross? Is that what held Him to the cross? No, it wasn't. It was His love for you and me that held Jesus to the cross. So we laugh at the puny new ropes and we laugh at the, the nails and the the ropes that held Jesus to the cross, but it was His love that held us there. In verse 14, And He came to Leah. The Philistines came out shouting to meet Him. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Him. And the ropes that were in His arms became as flax that were caught on fire and His bonds melted off His hands. Basically, He flexed. He tore off the bonds. Anything that held Him, they broke off like it was burnt flax or uh, burnt uh, garments. They just fell apart and melted off His hands. And He found a fresh jawbone in verse 15. You'll notice fresh jawbone. That means this animal was dead. So remember, He's a Nazarite. But he had no qualms of touching this corpse to find a weapon. So once again, our champion compromises. He grabs the jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And he struck 1,000 men swinging this fresh jawbone. That means this animal was freshly dead, but decomposing enough for a bone. He reaches in and grabs it and uses it as a weapon, striking 1,000 men. The word striking there doesn't mean he was high-fiving them. He was hitting until the white meat showed. He was killing people. In verse 16, And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. Now in verse 16, you have to sing that because in his juvenile way, and we can laugh at it and say, He's so juvenile, but we are too. We're so childish that we don't take things serious when God ordains us to take them serious. He sings, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, as he's killing thousands of the Philistines. Heaps upon heaps. That's heaps of bodies. That's dead corpses that he's picking up, throwing them on top of one another. He has killed 1,000 men with his hand and a jawbone. He has struck a thousand men. For there was not Judah there because we saw that Judah delivered him over to the enemies. And we know that Judah sings. They are worshipers. But there was nobody there to sing for Samson. So what does Samson do? He sings himself. But the problem is this worship song is about Samson. He doesn't give glory to God. He doesn't give God credit and all His might and His strength. He's swinging that jawbone, cracking skulls and breaking necks. He's getting it done, but He's giving Himself glory in the song that He sings. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. He sings it. In verse 17... Before we get to 17, 16, I want you to imagine Samson and all his glory and might standing, his chest heaving over his enemies. They're laying out, strode all around him. His countrymen, the Judites, are gone and he's standing there all by himself. He would feel accomplished. He would sing his own praises because didn't he take his hand to the jawbone and just wipe these enemies out? In verse 17, as soon as he finished speaking, 
he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Rathamalia. Rathamon basically means heaps upon heaps. He names the place the pile in Leah. He calls that place as a testament for what he did there. I mean, this is Samson. He's the champion of Israel. Then verse 18 dawns on us like the sunrise in the morning. It's, it's evident even though he's strong and mighty. He's able to take care of business. Verse 18 comes up. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? After singing his own praises, it's almost like he's the prodigal son. Tell me you remember the story where the prodigal is in the pig pen and he sees the pods and he sees the hollow husks and the garbage that the pigs eat. And he longed and thirsted and hungered for the pig food. But then it says something that we'll miss. It says his mind came to him. He remembered in his father's house that even the servants have better than what he's swallowing in that pig pen. Here we almost see this mighty man who wipes out a thousand Philistines. His mind comes to him. and says, God, you are God. And I'm flesh and bone. Even though I swung the donkey jaw and I wiped out these men, I am still mortal. And God, I'm going to die here for I thirst. No matter how big and bad we think we are or how bulletproof or how immortal we think we are. I remember when I was 18, I thought I could move mountains. I was strong. But then 19 came. 20, 21. It won't slow down. 22. Then 30 rolled around. Then 40. And I don't know what's around 43, but it, it ain't getting much better. I'm feeling the joints. I, I feel my, my pain sipping. I feel the pain slipping in and my strength pulling out slowly. Mortality as my beard turns gray. I start to face the facts that I'm growing older. And I see those that I loved when I was 18 going to the ground even though they didn't grow older. And God progressed and showed me that I've grown at this age and I'll continue to grow only by His might for I'm flesh and bone. I'm not Teflon. I will not live forever. He is God and I am man. So we see here that Samson says, God, I'm thirsty and I'm about to die. So he prays to God, one mightier than him. Isn't that what prayer is? When you pray, you're petitioning someone greater than you. That you need help. You cry out to the one who's mightier than you. So here's Samson, the mighty champion of Israel. What does he do? He prays. Maybe that's why people don't pray so much. Let's be honest. They're too good, too talented, too strong. Too all-knowing, too wise, too cunning, too rich, too healthy. That's why people don't pray. Until we are face to face with our mortality and see that it is fleeting. He cries out, he says he was thirsty. And he gives credit to God. And verse number 18 says, You have granted this great salvation. It was you, O oh God. Before He was singing His praises until the thirst hit. 
I don't know about y'all, but I felt like I was good and mighty until God put me flat on my back. And when you're flat on your back, there's nowhere to look but up. And you look into the host of heavens, you know there is a God. Maybe that's what's the problem with our current generation. I'm not talking about Generation Z, Generation X, or Millennial Generation. I'm just talking about our culture, our people, and our time. God has not put us on our backs yet to where we only look up to Him. Right now, we've got our eyes on other little trinkets and toys and little gods. And we're focused on these little things, believing ourselves to be God, that we'll live forever, that we'll beat the statistics. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it. Ten out of ten people die. But I'm not. I know we hear about people who get COVID. Yeah, 99% survive. And 1% don't. But I'm not going to be the one that won't surprise. It won't be the COVID that took you out. It could be a drunk driver, a stray bullet. It could be a sneeze and an aneurysm. God can let you fall dead right where you stand. God is in control and you are not. So that should drive you to your knees and make your prayer life vibrant. Amen. He says, God, you have granted the salvation. It was you, O oh Lord. Before I sang my little song about heaps upon heaps, where I struck down a thousand men, but Lord, it was you who gave this great salvation. By your hand, your servant, and now I shall die because of thirst, and I will fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. Not only are they physically uncircumcised, their hearts are hardened with a layer of rock and uncircumcised in their heart. The cutting away of circumcision is what makes it tender. And here he is saying, I'm going to die, God, unless you, you revitalize me and strengthen me. I can think of somebody else who cried out in Scripture, I'm thirsty. I can think of someone else, and it won't Peter. It won't John, it, it won't Daniel, it won't Ezekiel, even though he was in a valley of dry, dead bones. There was another greater champion than Samson. In fact, this person whose lips were cracked and dehydrated was the very person who created the oceans as well as the rivers. This person whose thirst was unquenched and was overtaking them in the throes of death was the same person who created us in our womb. This person. Jesus, we read in John chapter 19, verse 28, He hung on the cross and as the shadow of death was starting to take over Him, He says, I thirst. But what you don't realize in John chapter 19, verse 28, they give him sour wine. And what you don't know about sour wine is they put it on a sponge and they put it on a stick and they took it up to his mouth. And he tasted it and it said that he spit it out. What most people don't know is in public bathhouses in biblical times, they would implore a slave. His job was to clean the clients who used the bathhouse. They would use the bathroom. They didn't have toilet paper, y'all. Some of y'all would have been in bad shape. I'm going to be honest with you. Because I remember the COVID, y'all bought it all, all the toilet paper. There was no toilet paper in biblical times. So the slave's job was to take a sponge and put it in sour wine and clean the clients with a stick. So when Jesus was hanging on the cross to insult Him even more, 
the God of all creation. They rubbed his mouth on that nasty sponge with that wine. And yet he gave himself for sinners like us. Because he can tell us in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, on the last day of the festival, he stood up. He said, I am the living water. Those who come to me will never thirst, ever. You'll never lack. Jesus was thirsty, so I wouldn't have to be. Jesus bore the wrath of God, so I wouldn't. Jesus died on my behalf so I can live the life that I don't deserve. Boy, this is good, y'all. I do hope the gospel grips you. As we see here the little tidbits and little stories and foreshadowings of Christ. Jesus is the one who quenches the thirsty soul. The story continues in verse 19. And God split open the hollow place that is at Leah and water came from it. In verse 19 we see the gospel there. In a place that was unexpected and a, and a dead place because a resurrection Sunday's coming and bearing on us. In a dead tomb, cold, where there's no life. When that beautiful sunrise came, the angelic host started to sing, Arise, my love. The rock rolled away and Jesus stood up, fully man and fully God, proving that He is God. From a dry place, we see where God speaks and water came from a hollow place. And He drank and His Spirit returned and He revived. If that ain't the gospel, I don't know what is. In Revelation, Jesus tells us that He's the fountain. If tonight you are weary, tired, and dry, come to Jesus if your heart has grown cold, come close to the one whose eyes burn as if they were fire. If your affections have fallen off and you just don't want to read your Bible as much and you don't want to pray as much, may the coals of your heart be stirred tonight by Jesus. His Spirit revived and notice he changes the name of the place. He changes the name of the place where it was donkeys upon donkeys. Well, in the original translation, he, he's a little vulgar, and I know we're all proper, but he calls it the donkeys upon donkeys because he says, I use a, a jawbone of a donkey to kill all these donkeys, is what he said in the original. But he changed it. His spirit was revived, therefore, the name of it was called. Ian Horka, which means he hears the one who prays. It is at Leah to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of Philistines 20 years. The ego of Samson is changed here when he encounters the Almighty God. When he sees that he is just flesh and bone and ashes. He changes. Truly, if you ever have an encounter with God, it will change you. 
No, no, no. I don't, I don't mean you just go to church once in a while and it's casual. When you fully have an encounter with God, it will change the way you speak. It'll change to what you stare at. It'll change where your hands or where your feet carry you and what your hands grab onto. It'll change everything about you. It'll change your motives. It'll change the intentions of your heart. It'll change your imaginations. It'll change your ambitions. When you truly have an encounter with God, I want you to investigate your own heart tonight. Have you been truly changed? Have you been revived like we see Samson has been here? For truly you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Like we read in Ephesians. All you want to do is sin. Until God speaks to you. Until He revives you. Until He changes your heart. Have you been changed? Have you been revived? Have you been regenerated? Have you been born again? You've heard the gospel over and over here at Riverside. Has it pricked you in such a way that I just can't go on living the way I've been living? But then again, preacher, I've done a lot of wicked and bad things. I've sinned. I've done things that nobody knows about but me and God. And I just don't see how He could forgive me. Well, on, Wednesday, or on Sundays, you've heard me talking about the sin of unbelief. Believe me, I understand when you sin so greatly. You believe that there's no way God can forgive you. But let me reiterate what I've said recently. There's more grace in Jesus than there's sin in you. Jesus forgives sinners. Why do you always say that? Because we always need to hear it. Ain't nobody walking in here with a halo floating with angels and doves around you. We are sinners and we're saved by grace. And it's good to our souls to be reminded that Jesus died for sinners because we're sinners. So preacher, tell me that old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. Amen. Tell him how he washed me and he bought me, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus that was spilled on my behalf. So tonight I, I lay these things down before you. What will you do with them? Will you simply roll your eyes and carry on or will you use it as information just to use during Bible trivia that Samson killed a thousand men with a jawbone and thought he was going to die until God revived him showing him that he's God. What will you do with these things? I've done a lot of good things for God. But let me assure you that it's not enough to earn your place into heaven. It has to be uh, the work of God that saves you. God doesn't owe anybody heaven. If you're sitting here tonight and you believe you are owed heaven, that's a sure sign that you ain't going. If you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, I can't believe that I'm going to heaven. Me. If you knew me and the things I've done and the things I've thought and the, the things I've done with my hands and if you knew me. But the Bible tells us while we were yet sinners. He didn't wait for you to get sober. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. He didn't wait for you to get a shower and go home and clean out your wet browser. He didn't wait for you to clean out all the alcohol you got in the house and get away from all the drugs. And He didn't wait for you to get rid of all that pride when you judge everybody else according to your righteousness. While you were at your worst, Jesus died for sinners. Oh, that's just good to me. 
Let us bow our heads and pray. Father, tonight, as we are reminded that you are the fountain that revives the weary soul. As we remember the night that we're flesh and bone and you're the one who puts the spirit inside of us. As we remember tonight that we're not the heroes of the story even though we might sing our own praises heaps upon heaps with a donkey donkey bone jaw I have done this. When we build up ourselves to be the hero of the story we are reminded that there is one true hero. There's one true champion Yes, we might be caught up in our own little ideas and our own little motives. But Lord, let us live our life to Your glory. When we've been encountering You and You've changed us, maybe tonight we we don't know a lot about Jesus. Maybe we're, we're just testing the waters. Maybe. But I remember on my wedding day, I stood across from a magistrate with my bride and I didn't know everything about her. But I knew enough that I was committing myself to her. And tonight, Lord, I pray that through the power of Your Holy Spirit that someone will be convicted. That they'll say, God, will You have me? Not that I accept You because You are God. It's not that You need me, but Lord, I need You. That we'll see how thirsty we are. No, we'll see how dead we are. Unless You speak to us and we live. So Father, through television, podcasts, through through those outside and those inside, do Your work, Holy Spirit. Build Your church. Make it mighty and strong by the roots that are found in the bedrock of Jesus Christ. So Father, that we may bring glory to Your name. That when we walk out these doors, we go into all the world doing the Great Commission, inviting, compelling, and bringing them to the foot of the cross that you will receive glory and honor. In your most precious name we pray. Amen. Inviting you and encouraging you. Bring somebody with you Sunday here at Riverside. I love you, church. I'll see you here Easter Sunday morning.